Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we have uh, gone before you just a few minutes ago to ask for your grace to be upon this time of preaching and hearing. We, uh, we bow before you and say, Heavenly Father, please, uh, please come in your grace and please work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, so given its name by St. Augustine. Someone has said that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached. Someone else has said that it is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. That one has also said, I have to confess that I have fallen under its spell, or rather under the spell of him who preached it. For the last seven years, at least, I have been constantly pondering it. I have dealt with it more than just today and uh, the two or three months leading up to today. Uh, I don't know how many times, but I'm not able to say that uh, I have been constantly pondering it for the last seven years. But hopefully that gives us uh, an indication as to how appropriate it will be for us to continue to think about the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we are going to consider the beginning verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, for the last two or three months, we've been looking at different sections in the Sermon on the Mount. But again, today, we're going to uh, go to the start and consider the beginning verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And in doing this, uh, we this morning, uh, point one, will look at Matthew's introduction to the sermon found in verses one and two of chapter five. And then point two, we will spend a little time with the first two Beatitudes of the sermon, Matthew five verses three and four. Please turn in your Bible to Matthew 5 and notice again with me the words of verses 1 and 2. Matthew 5 verses 1 and 2. Now, when he, meaning Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, point one, Matthew's introduction. Let's take up four phrases from Matthew's 
introduction. First phrase, A. Matthew writes, now, when Jesus saw the crowds. At the time of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was very popular. Crowds, large crowds, were often found where he was. Uh, look at verses 23 through 25 of Matthew 4 once more. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. The end now of verse 24. And he healed them. Verse 25. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This was a time of great popularity in our Lord's life. Question, why was our Lord so popular at this time? Why did large crowds follow him? Some, no doubt, followed him because of his preaching the good news of the kingdom, to be part of the kingdom, because they were hearing the words of eternal life. But I think others, most likely the far majority of the people, simply because of the physical benefits he was bestowing. Matthew 4.24, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, and he healed them. Most because of the physical benefits he was bestowing. Here's another question. Why are you following Jesus? Be honest with yourself. How about you? Is it just for temporal blessings? For some kind of a better life now? Or is it because he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and you want to be right with God and live for God and love God and glorify God in God's kingdom? After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus went on to say to the people who were fed, and this is recorded in John 6, verses 26 and 27. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, not because what I did points to who I am, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, 
but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Do not work for food that spoils. Is your life simply a working for food that spoils? Is Jesus for you only another means of getting more out of life? Or is he your Savior and your Lord? Now, when he saw the crowds, second phrase, B, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Even though many, no doubt most of the people, were following Jesus for temporal reasons, he didn't, in disgust, shoo them away. He didn't say to them, go, uh, leave, uh, be out of here. You're not really interested in me. All you're really interested in is getting things. No, we read that our Lord went up on a mountainside and taught. He went on to instruct. You say, how do we know that he taught? Well, it says so in black and white in verse 2. And he began to teach them, saying. And it also says so in the phrase, and he sat down. At this time, the posture of a rabbi, uh, the posture of a teacher who was going to teach was that of sitting down. Today, we come to church, and the preacher stands. In our Lord's day, the prevailing custom was the one who taught sat down. Let me show you this. Luke 4, uh, starting at verse 16. He, meaning Jesus, went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him because he was about to teach. And he said to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, when our Lord saw the crowds, he didn't shoo them away. He didn't tell them to leave. Rather, he had compassion on them. He went up on a mountainside and sat down to teach. Here's another question. 
How are you in reference to the crowds? The crowds of people around us who do not know the Lord Jesus. I see how Jesus is. How are you? Do you care? Do you have compassion for them? Do you want to see them hear the truths of God? If so, what are you doing about that? By the way, our Lord going up on a mountain to teach. Some Bible scholars say that this is quite significant for two reasons. One, it is meant to communicate the utmost authority of the Lord Jesus, and two, the utmost importance of what he was about to say. Now you say, how did they get that? From where did that come? Well, when God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, he did so from a mountain. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he did so from a mountain. Utmost authority, the Lord God is speaking. Utmost importance, we better listen. Moving on. To whom, though, did the Lord actually give the Sermon on the Mount? Doesn't our text say, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Third phrase, which is actually a sentence, see, yes, uh, our text does next read, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. I think the way to answer our question is like this. Jesus did preach the Sermon on the Mount so that the crowds would hear. They were there, and he wanted them to hear the gospel of the kingdom and know that he was the king of the kingdom and that they were invited to be part of the kingdom. The very end of Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount says, chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because they were there. They heard, they listened. Jesus wanted them to hear. They were amazed at his teaching. But the Sermon on the Mount was especially for his disciples. They were the ones who would live it. They were the ones who would do it. They were the ones who would experience it. And they were the ones who were to take this gospel of the kingdom to the world. His disciples came to him. Here's the multitude. 
Jesus goes up a, a, a grassy hillside. He calls his disciples. They come and they sit at his feet. But the others are there listening, hearing as well. Are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus? Then the Sermon on the Mount is especially for you. It is how you should be living, what you should be experiencing, and what you should be sharing with others. And so, as we have been studying different parts, different sections of the Sermon on the Mount, I hope you have been asking God to bring this content, these truths, into your life. This is especially meant for you. One more phrase from Matthew's introduction, D. And he began to teach them, saying, what is it that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount? What is the theme of his teaching? The theme of the Sermon on the Mount can be put in a couple of ways. We can say, as Dr. William Hendrickson does in his commentary on Matthew, the theme is the gospel of the kingdom. Verse 23 of Matthew 4 says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, uh, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news or gospel of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is the gospel of the kingdom. Dr. Hendrickson says our Lord's sermon has three well-defined divisions to it. First, Jesus speaks about the citizens of the kingdom, their character, their, their blessedness, and their relation to the world. Next, the Lord sets forth the righteousness of the kingdom, the standard of life demanded by the king. And last, Jesus gives an exhortation to enter the kingdom. The kingdom's citizens, the kingdom's righteousness, and an exhortation to come. Come and be part of the kingdom. Another way to put the message of the Sermon on the Mount is to say, as Dr. John Stott does, that it is a description of what Christ wants his followers in the kingdom to be and do. Have you ever had someone ask you, tell me, tell me about being a Christian. Describe it for me. Give me some words. The Sermon on the Mount is Christ's answer to that. And in a word, he wants us to be different. Quote, notice the beginning words of John, excuse me, of Matthew 6 and verse 8. They are, do not 
be like them. We are to be different from the nominal church, and we are to be different from the secular world. We are to be different from the religious, and we are to be different from the irreligious, end quote. A description of what Christ wants his followers, the citizens of the kingdom, to be and do. And again, in a word, it is different, out of the ordinary. Are you different? Can people say about you, there is someone who is not like others. You do not do as they do. I hope so. For that is true Christianity according to our King. That's Matthew's introduction to our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Let me say this, I hope I got it right. That's point one. For the rest of our message, uh, point two, let's briefly look at the first two Beatitudes. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount starts with Beatitudes, eight or nine of them. Let's spend a, a little time with the first two. Observe what our Lord says about the citizens of the kingdom in verses three and four now. Verses three and four. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Citizens of the kingdom are poor in spirit, and citizens of the kingdom are ones who mourn. A, poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Does it mean to be materially poor? Some, a few, suggest that this is what our Lord is saying here. His followers are to live in material poverty. My friends, if that is the case, then none of us here this morning are Christians or at least living like Christians. The words of this first beatitude, however, are not blessed are the materially poor. They are blessed are the poor in spirit. So it's not material poverty that our Lord is talking about here. It is rather poverty in spirit. And poverty in spirit, being poor in spirit, means to be empty of ourself before God and totally dependent on Christ. That is so important. Let me say it again. 
to be empty of ourself before God and totally dependent on Christ. It is to be rid of pride and cast upon grace. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, and he puts it strongly. It means to regard ourselves before God as wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. It is to be as the tax collector in our Lord's parable in Luke 18. Uh, the Pharisee in that parable uh, said to God in verses 11 and 12, God, I thank you that I am not like all other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. The tax collector, however, we read in verse 13, would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. John Calvin has said, he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. My friends, I told you, the Sermon on the Mount teaches us that the Christian is different. My, how the Christian is different. Now, are you this way? Do you see yourself in yourself before God as wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. That is what Christ is teaching us here. We are to be totally dependent on him. And notice, uh, quote, that this is the very first thing our Lord says about citizens of the kingdom. This is the very first thing he says about the gospel of the kingdom, poor in spirit. And one reason for this is becoming poor in spirit is the very first thing that must happen in the life of anybody who ever enters God's kingdom. Nobody ever entered on the basis of pride. A parenthesis here. Nobody ever entered the kingdom of heaven on the basis of merit, on the basis of worthiness. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. To finish now that quote, the doorway is very low, and only people who crawl can come in. Let me ask you again, are you a beggar? 
Do you see your spiritual poverty? Do you know your sinfulness and need of Christ? Do you recognize that before God, you have nothing, absolutely nothing to present to him? You need his grace. A citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The second beatitude, B, is blessed are those who mourn. I have read that there are nine different verbs in the Greek to express the concept of grief. And the one that the Lord Jesus uses here in the second beatitude is the strongest of them all. It is reserved I've read, for mourning the dead. It is used in Genesis, for instance, of Jacob's grief when he believed his son Joseph had been killed. It refers to a deep inner agony. I still remember sitting in a room at Laurel View Village with my mom who had just died and experiencing a deep inner agony that, that made me want to get up and get out of the room. But what do citizens of the kingdom, but over what do citizens of the kingdom mourn like this? Their sin, their rebelliousness to God, we are not pleased with our disobedience. We do not brush our disobedience off. Our disobedience breaks our heart. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. These words were written by David uh, after his sin with Bathsheba. We know about David's sin with Bathsheba, do we not? And we know that Psalm 51 is his prayer of repentance, do we not? But do we also know that David in his repentance mourned so deeply that it, quote, wrenched his soul to its very depths, end quote. Do we know that Christians are also people who grieve at times. Grieve for their sins. Someone has said, there's no greater message I can think of for the church today than for it to start crying instead of laughing. Nobody ever came into the kingdom of God who did not mourn over his own sinfulness. You cannot verify that you are a true Christian unless throughout your life there is the same sense of grief over the sin in your life, end quote. What is a Christian like? Tell me about the citizen of the kingdom. Well, one word different. 
and then to understand that a little more fully, one who is poor in spirit and one who mourns. Today, let's go before the Lord. This is the Lord's day, a day especially set apart by him, for him. Let's go before the Lord in true humility, asking for greater humility, greater dependence on him. And let's go before the Lord with genuine sorrow and ask for deeper sorrow in reference to our sins, a deeper repentance. A Christian is totally dependent on Christ. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, totally dependent on Christ and genuinely upset with his sins so that he, she turns from them. Let's go before the Lord today. And as we do, let's also hear from him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to go before you at some point today and go over what we've heard for your glory and for our good. Please, Heavenly Father, be with us today and help us now to do something in reference to this message. In Jesus' name, amen.